from Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews who were devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They're just filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you. And give ears to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning. If you go in the app, all those details are in there, and you can register and tell us you're coming and what you want to help with. Um, anyway, I'm glad you're here. Everyone doing all right? All right, fantastic. If you can't tell already, uh, we are in the middle of a series on the Holy Spirit, thus all the songs and scriptures we've read up to this point, um, or what some people call in church circles the Holy Ghost, which freaks us out more, you know, like we're talking about Casper or something like that. Um, it's, it's been my experience growing up in church uh, in the South. Uh, in my early 20s, I was like a worship guy, so I'd go all around all Gwinnett County singing songs and churches, all sorts of churches. Saw all sorts of expressions of the church in the South. Um, and what I've discovered about this particular topic, the Holy Spirit, or this sentence, here's the sentence. Uh, you can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, just that idea is like throwing a flash grenade in a room of Christians, amongst some people. As soon as you start the convo about the Holy Spirit, as soon as you say, hey, I think from Scripture, what we see is that you can be empowered by the Holy Ghost. It's like if you have a bunch of Christians in the room, it turns into a Western film, and everyone's like ready to draw, like on the first crazy person that says something. Seriously, I don't know if you've experienced this. I've seen it. People, as soon as you say the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, or we think you, the Bible says there's gifts of the Spirit, and that's something that should happen in the church, right? People will immediately arrange themselves into one of two camps. Um, let me describe these camps for you. As soon as I say we're going to do a Holy Spirit series, one group is like, oh, no, I liked this church. You know, now you're going to make it weird. I knew it. You're going to make it weird. Can we just read the Bible? Follow Jesus? Then we got to do what you got to do. I mean, you're, right now, that group is Googling normal church near me. <laughs> that's, that's one group. It's okay if you're in that group. I love it. I'm so glad you're here. And then there's another group. When I say, hey, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, they're like, it's about time. 
finally, we're going we're gonna to do real church now. We're going to do it for real, all right? <laughs> you got a streamer in your back pocket. You'll wave that thing till Jesus comes back, right? There's a group in that group. They've got like interpretive dances on lockdown. They're ready to go, right? And then, and then there's a group that did not grow up in church, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just glad you're here. Good. I'm just glad you're here. So uh, what, what, what you find, if you didn't grow up in church, this is what you find. If you hang out with Christians long enough, you'll find that this topic can be super divisive. Uh, my buddy Aaron says, um, Christians treat this topic like uh, we do politics. Politics. They treat this idea. It's true, historically, man. We treat this idea like we do politics in America. So we divvy up into two camps, and then we get more and more extreme and stubborn and stuffed down into our own perspective. And the more extreme we get in our camp, the more we begin to vilify and dismiss and demonize the other side. That's politics. And that's how Christians act about this topic. I hate to say it. It's true. You've probably experienced it. It's shocking how unbelievably mean-hearted and condemning Christians can be to one another, people who say they follow Jesus, <laughs> about this topic, about can you be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all, we could sit here all day long and look at memes and posts of Christians just railing against other Christians about this topic. It's true. It breaks my heart. So we could take that route as a group of friends, we could take that route. We could take the route of, hey, let's stuff ourselves into the thing that we already think. And I could get up here and I could kind of try to create a little club around the way that we think about the Holy Spirit, the way we think about this issue, right? And I could build a little hill that we could look down our noses at all the other Christians and say, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. You know, we, we, us in Buford, Georgia, in 2023, we figured it out. We could do that. Have you seen this? This is hilarious. I love this so much. Here, here's the, a membership class. And the guy giving, that's me giving the membership class. Here's, here's Christianity through history. And he says, now, this is where our movement came along and finally got it right. And then the guy said, oh, Jesus is so lucky to have us. Listen. I'm glad you can laugh at that um, because that's the landscape of Christianity. That's the pride and arrogance with which many Christians approach things like this and doctrine in, gen in general. We could take that route. And some of us, I think some, a lot of Christians prefer that route. Pastor, your job is to get up here and prove to us that we are right. Your job is to get up here and prove to us that we think rightly about this, to stroke our ego, fill us with self-righteousness. You know, there's a scripture that talks about knowledge, and he says, you know what knowledge does? It puffs up. And some of us would prefer a religion like that, in which we come to a church and we're puffed up in our own sense of self-righteousness and knowledge, and we leave thinking, <laughs> Jesus is lucky to have us. That's just not the kind of pastor I am. I'm so sorry if you'd like that. We could take that route. Sorry, that was, I came out hot there. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll bring it back. So, you got, just a little, I get a little edgy about that one thing. Okay. This is, this is what I know. This is what I know right now, dude. Here's what I know. This is what I know, know, know about God and theology and Christians. When we all get to heaven, we're going to all find out we all had it wrong. 
we are going to all find out, wow, I was so sure I knew this and that and that. And we will be humbled into the dust and exalted into the heavens at the same time. Because that's what the gospel does to you. So, we could take that route. We could take the, hey, let's be self-righteous and convince each other that we think rightly about this in 2023 in Buford. Or, we could just read what the Bible says. Now, this is my conviction about you guys and why I love you so much. I think there's a crew in here that that's your position. I do believe that about you. I believe there are people in this room that say, hey, you know what? Let's just read the text. And let's just read what the Bible says because I have a suspicion that you love the book, y'all. And I think some of you in here, you want to know the God of the book, not the God of your own imagination. Or the God of some sort of niche doctrine we can create in 2023. And when you love the book, you want to hear it on its own terms. Right? You want to hear what it actually says, even if it confronts you. Now, that's my prayer. No, we're just going to pray right now. You know what? We're in church. We're going to pray. Here we go. Let's pray. Jesus, God, as we open the Bible, would you allow it to confront us in ways that make us look more like Jesus? God, I just have a suspicion that there are ways in which the Holy Spirit longs to indwell us in this place that we are trigger shy of. We're no, we don't want to step in to a spirit-filled life for whatever reason. God, would you break down the barriers in your name? God, would you let the Bible do what the Bible does? It goes out from your mouth, God, and it, it prunes what you want it to prune. It grows. It, oh, just all, thank you, Jesus. Let it do what it does. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get to the notes. So last week we said one of the reasons this issue is so divisive in church is because people lose the plot. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that when it comes to the Holy Spirit? Well, we get preoccupied with things like sensation, we get preoccupied with things like, did you get butterflies in your stomach? Did you feel butterflies? Did you fall down backwards? We get preoccupied with uh, supernatural manifestations. I saw gold dust. Were you slain in the spirit? Did you speak in tongues? We get preoccupied with these things, right? And because, so that's one issue, we're distracted. But also because we are good post-enlightenment materialists, we get totally sideswiped with anything that smells of the supernatural. Because we've been trained, you have been trained, that the only real thing in the universe is what you can see. So, when maybe you've heard of rumors <laughs> of things like, hey, I had this one friend, he went on a, a mission retreat. I want to say retreat. Um, sometimes that's true, you know. But uh, a mission trip. And, uh, you know, he, he was, they were praying for this person, and this blind person received their sight. And you're like, well... <laughs> You know, or, or you hear this thing of like, man, we were praying for this person. They had arthritis, and man, they're, 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 they were healed. They're, they're, they, could ha they got more. See, we get so shell-shocked <laughs> and preoccupied with picking up the pieces of our shattered materialistic worldview off the ground that we totally miss the point. <laughs> we're distracted by the sign. Y'all, you know what a sign does? You know what a sign does? It points to something. <laughs> <laughs> 985, this way, you know? We're so distracted by the thing that happens that we completely miss the point. What's the point? What is the plot? When God pours out his spirit on people to overflowing, that's the language in the New Testament. It's overflowing. It's baptized in, saturated, fall, clothed in, poured on. So in other words, when God, when the New Testament, when it talks about God pouring his spirit on people, it is not a misting. It's not a drop here and a drop there. It's over and abundantly more than enough of his spirit. God pours so much of it out that it gets on other people. 
right? That's kind of the point. In other words, the point wasn't so the disciples could do cool parlor tricks. I think some people think that, right? It wasn't so like Peter could be like, hey, hold my beer, watch this. Hey, paralytic, get up in the name of Jesus. I don't know why I'm Southern. All of a sudden, I just imagine he's in, right? And gets up. Y'all see that? Y'all see that? Man, y'all see that? Right? I think some people think this whole conversation is about spiritual showboating or some adrenaline uh, spiritual seeking or adrenaline spiritual junkie. You know what I mean? Like we think, so we don't ask. We don't want the Holy Spirit. We're not prideful, arrogant people. Look at us. We're Christians, right? So, uh, but according to Jesus, we desperately need his spirit, not just for internal transformation, although the spirit does that. Not just so you experience God's love, although yes and please and amen. Not just so the miraculous happens in our day and age, but please, 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 God, yes and amen. But we need his spirit to be his witness. That's what we see in scripture. God says, you, Jesus says, hey man, listen, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. We said this last week. Don't start a church. Don't start a prayer. Don't preach a sermon. <laughs> don't do anything until you're clothed with the power of the spirit, the promise of the father, right? And, and we need it. To be his witnesses. So I just want to, we're just going to push you. This is dovetailing from last week. We're just pushing on this idea. If you need the Holy Spirit to be a witness to Jesus, what does that mean? It means that you need him to represent Jesus. Okay, well, what do we think representing Jesus looks like? This is an honest question. Stay with me. What do you think representing Jesus looks like in your workplace? What do you think it looks like as you're going to the grocery store, at your job? Like, seriously, if you're going to try to represent Jesus, how would you go about doing that? What's, what, well, I would be like, well, I should be kind. Yes, that is true. <laughs> you should not be a jerk. <laughs> uh, you should be sweet and hospitable. Yeah, Je Jesus was those things. He was very kind, very, very gracious. Yeah, you should be kind. But here's the thing about this. Any good business owner knows it is in his best interest to be kind and hospitable. Okay? Uh, uh, people don't do business with jerks if they can avoid it. So yes, it is being kind and hospitable and loving, but it's more than that. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Maybe we think, if I'm going to represent Jesus, well, I need to talk about Jesus all the time, and that's the kind of person you're afraid to go to restaurants with because they're going to talk to the waiter, you know, about things, and it embarrasses you, you know. So maybe it's that. Maybe that's what it means to represent Jesus. Um, it's all those things, yes, for sure. I mean, some of us would never talk about Jesus at work. That's okay. Play your cards how you want. Um, but if we look at the book of Acts, we see perfectly what it looks like to represent Jesus. Have you read the book of Acts? Um, do you know what it looks like? It looks like the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. Like, it's almost a mirror image. His disciples are doing the exact same thing that Jesus was doing. And the author, Luke, wants you to see that. He wants you to connect the pattern. He wants you to see that as the disciples of Jesus began doing the same thing Jesus was doing, walking around, talking, loving people, extending God's mercy, we're okay with that. You know, but then they're also walking around doing the things that Jesus did, which was healing people. Now, that's when we're like, okay, well, that's, we don't do that, obviously. I mean, we just pr we're kind and we pray for people, have compassion. We proclaim. Let's proclaim. We're comfortable with proclaiming. Jesus is maybe, maybe not so much anymore, right? But Jesus is the way, okay? One way of life. Maybe we're comfortable with that, maybe not. But what we're not comfortable with is demonstrating. See, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom and he demonstrated the kingdom. So he said, salvation has come to you. And now I'm going to heal your body physically so that you can know that salvation has come. 
And now I'm going to cast out the spiritual oppression that's ruining your life. I'm going to, the kingdom of God's going to come. To, he proclaimed the kingdom and he demonstrated the kingdom. Y'all, that was how he did it. And in the book of Acts, guess what happens? The disciples do that. And what happened to Jesus in his ministry when he did that? Well, he began to be persecuted by the authorities, didn't he? Yeah, the Roman and the Jewish authorities. Well, guess what happens to the disciples in the book of Acts? They go around, they proclaim, they demonstrate, and then, huh, lo and behold, they begin to be persecuted by the local authorities. And eventually, all of them are killed, just like Jesus was. What do you think it looks like to represent Jesus? At its most basic, simple level, Jesus is saying, the thing you need to represent me is not ideas about me. It is not just doctrine about me. It is not just my commands to love others, but it is his love himself inside of you. That's what the Holy Spirit is. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. It's his spirit indwelling in you, or as Paul would put it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the thing you need to represent Jesus above every other thing, right? And only those who are yielded to the spirit of Jesus can accurately represent him. If not, you're just representing the way you think about it. Maybe you're representing your doctrine. Maybe you're representing your church. Maybe you're representing the post-enlightenment material, materialistic understanding of the Bible in 2023. Maybe that's what you represent. But if you want to represent Jesus, you need his spirit inside you, his very essence. And that's what was, that was kind of last week, right? And, and I just want to, I'll just give you this question and then we'll move on. Explain to me how you can follow someone without actually following them. That's what we're getting at there. You have to wrestle with this if you want to follow Jesus. You have to figure out, man, following him at its most basic level <laughs> means that, have you ever played follow the leader? <laughs> like, do you know how that works? The leader goes out and he does things, and then you do the things. And some of you are thinking right now, this guy is uh, crazy. He has no clue what he's talking What are you talking about? It, it, what if it's that simple? What if following Jesus is really that simple? Just doing the things that we saw him doing. Okay, so let's move on. Let's get back to the main point. Um, we said last week, I think we don't ask for the Spirit because we've lost the plot, which according to Jesus, the plot is that we are saturated with his Spirit so we can be witnesses to him. And there's two main thrusts in Scripture we see of the baptism of the Spirit, of what it does. Two main thrusts. There's an inward thrust and an outward thrust. There's an experience. Read the book of Acts. There is an experience. People know something's happening. Those guys are drunk. That was a physical experience that was happening. We see this over and over, repeated over and over. It is an actual experience in the book in the book of Acts, read it, okay? And when that happens, they are experiencing how they describe it is the love of God. We talk in the, in, in the scriptures, it talks about this is what the Holy Spirit does. He pours his love out in our hearts, right? They experience things like inner sanctification, joy, peace. This is why Paul would say this is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all these things. They experience things like tongues. And this is where we like, whoa, whoa, hold on now. They experience things like healing, they experience things like prophecies. That's what happens. There's an inward thrust to the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is saying there is a strong, overarching, outward thrust of the Holy Spirit too, which is, and we miss this all the time because we lose the plot, what is the outward thrust of the Holy Spirit? Salvation. That's what happens in the book of Acts. In other words, when the Spirit comes, when he is poured out, what he is doing, what God is doing, is reaching down to snatch out people from the enemy's grasp. That's what he's doing in pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now, okay, there's my premise. If this is true, if this, if this is true, that there is an outward thrust of the Holy Spirit, which, 
which equals salvation of the lost. It equals God reaching down and grabbing up people out of death. Then we should see this pattern plays out in the book of Acts when the Spirit falls. Do we? See, we're often so distracted by the wind and the tongues and the fire or the healings that we stop reading and we lose the plot. So I'm just going to read a few spots to you where the Spirit falls, and let's just see if there's a pattern. You cool? Yes, cool? All right, here's the Bible. All right, right, okay. Um, let's start with the, where the whole mess started, Pentecost, okay? And we'll go fast. I'm not going to keep us here forever, all right? Um, sound of wind, all right? Tongues of fire, everyone's hearing their own language, and then we freak out and we stop reading. <laughs> and we begin to analyze that. But what was the consequence of this in Scripture? Well, read the rest. Here we go. Peter stands up and he says, when they heard uh, this, they were cut. Oh, Peter preaches this sermon. He preaches the sermon. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to them and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And they said to Peter, sorry, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, when we read Pentecost, a lot of times we act like that's an optional part. We don't need to read that part, whatever. The point's the wind and the fire and the craziness and the goosebumps and the personal experience and the bragging rights, right? No, actually, like, what was the outcome? <laughs> what happened from all that? The outcome was not that they had some doctrine of hill that they could die on about what we think about the Holy Spirit. No, it was so that 3,000 people could experience the love and the grace and the gospel of Jesus. That was the point, <laughs> 3,000 spiritually dead people were born again into the loving embrace of a self-sacrificing God. Communion was restored between creator and creation for 3,000 souls, now going to live forever in the bosom of the Father, in the good graces of the King, right? And it seems like people read Pentecost, and that, uh, that little part about 3,000 people getting saved, we're like, well, that's not really a miracle. Tell you tell me salvation's not a miracle? You ever been saved? Dude, it's a miracle, bro. Like, it's a crazy miracle. Miracle. And here 3,000 people get in the kingdom. What was the point? See, we think the point is personal experience and all this kind of stuff. Dude, read the rest. <laughs> read the rest. Okay, that's just one. Let's keep going. Okay, Acts 9. Here we go. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. Now, we should just stop right there and fight over whether or not this really happened. Maybe he wasn't really paralyzed. Maybe we could fight over the fact, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Are we supposed to do things like this? Or we could read the rest. You guys see the pattern? Here we go. Acts 9.35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, that is the man who was paralyzed and healed, and they turned to the Lord. Y'all, an entire town is snatched out of the hand of the evil one. I could preach all day long. I know towns have been, right? I'll preach them blue in the face, and oftentimes I do. And I don't, never has a town been saved. Never has a whole town turned to the Lord, right? I mean, I hope God uses it. But here, this guy is saved. And what was the point? A whole town turned to Lord, a whole town stepped out of darkness into light. A whole town stepped out of depression and despair into hope and love and the goodness of God, right? That supernatural healing did something that no amount of preaching could do. We tracking, and what was the plot? What was the point? Okay, let's keep going. Here's a doozy for you. 
You guys see the pattern? Are we seeing it? I want you to see it in Scripture. I'm not making this stuff up. I guess I think I'm making it up sometimes. All right, here we go. Here's a doozy for you. This is Acts 15. Oh, no, this is 15 verses later. Sorry. And uh, there's a Jesus follower named Tabitha who dies. And so Peter goes to Joppa, which is right next to this town, and she's dead, dead girl. Acts 9, here we go. But Peter put them all outside, all those who were grieving, and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Beautiful line there. I love that. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Man, come on now. What's your role as a Christian? Giving the dead your hand and raising them up. What's the point, y'all? What's the point? So we can have good church services? So we can all be on the cool club and know that we think rightly? Or is it so we can give the dead our hand and raise them up? Why does God fill you with this spirit? Why does he want to fill you with this spirit? So let's just stop there and fight over whether, Pastor, are you saying we should pray for the dead? No, I didn't say that at all. I'm just, I'm just saying this is what happened. <laughs> this is what happened, all right? I'm saying quit, quit being distracted by the sign and read the rest. Ah, okay. And it came known throughout all Joppa. And surprise, surprise, many believed in the Lord. Many believed. Many were snatched out of the hand of the enemy into the kingdom of his loving son, salvation. Many were brought from the outside into God's heart to know and love him, right? And he will occasionally break his own natural laws that he created so that, he, so that some might know and love him. That's exactly what we see in Scripture. So that's three times the pattern I've laid before you in the book of Acts where the supernatural was not for the sake of the supernatural, it was the sake that, so that those on the outside could be saved. Now, let's just do one more because it's a good one. Acts 10. Um, Peter has a crazy vision, and this really ties it up for us. He has this crazy vision. Um, actually, ESV calls it um, a trance. That makes us real uncomfortable, <laughs> right? right? We don't do that, Chris. Well, I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. The Greek word is ecstasis. You know what we get from that? Ecstasy. Correct. Not the drug. <laughs> the state of mind. Okay. All right. So... Anyway, the point is, Peter's having an out-of-body experience. It's kind of trance, vision. And many, many, many Christians will say, nope, not biblical. Well, we just read it, dude. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. So he has this vision. And, and this massive tablecloth comes down out of heaven, and there's like a whole zoo of unclean animals on the tablecloth. Bur reptiles, birds, probably a pig, although it doesn't say it. And apparently Jesus speaks because Peter calls him Lord. And the, uh, Jesus says, uh, apparently, and again, it just Peter calls him Lord, so we're assuming. Uh, but uh, the voice says, Peter, rise, kill, eat. And Peter's response is classic. I love it. This is Christian sentiment to the bone. By no means, Lord. <laughs> no, one, no one gets it. N no, Lord. No, Lord. It doesn't, it's, a, it's, a, it's classic Christian sentiment. We tell no God. We tell God no all the time. We just do it in religious language. Yeah. So three times he sees the vision. And in my mind, <laughs> this is my mind, I'll step away here. I just see Jesus waving this slab of bacon, being like, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Okay, now that's not in the Bible. That's just my imagination. Um, but here, listen, oh, sit with it, sit with it. Y'all, mm, the Bible. God is asking Peter to do something he finds religiously repulsive. That's fascinating. 
God is asking Peter to do something he finds religiously and culturally repulsive. What if God points out a transgender cross-dresser to you and says, I want you to love him, they, she, she, in the name of Jesus. We should sit with that because some of you just got real uncomfortable. Let's go another step. What if, <laughs> that's not enough. Let's, what if God rebukes you and says, this is, this is another step for some people. You're going to pray for the political pundit you think is ruining this country. Tell me that's not culturally, religiously repulsive to some of you right now? You like threw up in your mouth when I said that, right? What if God calls you to sacrifice for and extend grace and forgiveness to those who haven't even asked and you know don't deserve it? and you find it culturally and religiously repulsive. Think of poor Ananias in Acts 9, when God says, hey, I want you to go to this Middle Eastern terrorist who's killing Christians, and I want you to pray for him, and I want you to watch scales fall from the eyes of this terrorist who's killing Christians, and that guy's gonna go on to write 13 some odd books of the New Testament. Dude, the Bible is going to inadvertently create a bunch of categories for you only to problematize them later with the grace of God. Can I say that again? Because you need to sit with this. The Bible's going to inadvertently create a bunch of categories for you, like the moral law, you know, religious rules and ethics, only to, I've never said a truer sentence, only to problematize those categories later with the grace of God. Say la. Say la. So we could say, Let's stop at Peter's vision and let's argue. Let's argue about whether or not trances are biblical, despite the fact we just read it in the Bible. Or let's argue about whether or not kosher foods, or we should eat kosher foods as Christians. Don't tell me people don't fight about that stuff. I know they do. I've been a Christian a long time, right? All right? Or we could, everyone, read the... Okay, that was really bad, but okay. All right. I was, I was really hoping for like a... You know, okay. And if we did, we would read... Uh, that what would be for the disciples the most surprising, world-shaking, paradigm-shifting turn of the entire story in which Peter preaches the gospel to some Romans, a Gentile, uh, um, Cornelius, a centurion. And in Acts 10.45, the Holy Spirit falls, is poured out even on the Gentiles. That's the language of the Bible. Even on the Gentiles. And the Gentiles start speaking, speaking in tongues and exalting God. So, We've read the rest, but still, let's just zoom in and say and well, this one thing. Uh, they spoke in tongues. And so what, what, what were they saying? They were exalting God. Now, despite the other multiple instances in Acts where they are filled uh, with the Holy Spirit and tongues isn't mentioned, we tend to attach tongues uh, to the one thing. But somehow, we seem to find a way to lose the plot. What did the tongues reveal? Well, they were saying to the disciples who remember what happened in Pentecost. That was one of the signs. And so God is letting them see right now what's happening. Ah, it's the Gentiles being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So what is God saying? He's saying, I'm after the nations, y'all. I'm after the nations. I'm after the outsiders, those who you have dismissed. This is going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to bless you so you can bless all the world. 
It's not for yourself. I'm blessing you to bless all the nations. And here, the plot literally explodes. And it's not exaggeration to say that the rest of the New Testament is Jewish Christians trying to sort out, can Gentiles get in on this? And if so, on what terms? It's not exaggeration to say that. Do they need to be circumcised? Read Galatians. Whole book, right? Do they need to obey the law? Read the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, right? When Gentiles are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like God in all his glory and mystery and surprise is whispering to his people, don't lose the plot. Don't lose the plot. It's not just about you. God's taking them all the way back to Abraham to say, don't lose the plot. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, He's inviting them to get swept up in his compassion for the prodigal, you see? The Gentiles, the outsiders, his compassion for the dumb and the drunk and the addicted and the blind. He's saying when the, when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the and Gentiles speak in tongues and we fight over tongues, he's saying, remember the plot. Remember the plot. You've been blessed to be a blessing. Light has come to darkness. Now you be my light. Now you be my light in, the, in darkness. Go and extend my kind of life to all those who are in death. Don't lose the plot. God wants to drench you in his spirit so that everywhere you go, you spread what 2 Corinthians 14 calls the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Who is fit for such things, asks the author. So maybe that stuff in scripture has caused you to say, yeah, I don't know, maybe I do need his spirit. Maybe not, I don't know. But here's what Jesus knew, okay? We're gonna wrap it up. Jesus seems to think it was possible to read the Bible and not read the Bible. Because he'd say to professional religious people, have you never read? <laughs> of course they've read that, Jesus. We talk them, right? And then he'd quote some passage. Have you never read? Blah, 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 blah. Of course they've read it. And I feel, y'all, that all I can do up here is push the Bible in front of you and over and over and over and over and over again say, have you read? Have you read the book of Acts? What did you see there? What does it mean? for how you think you should follow Jesus, especially when it comes to the presence of the supernatural. So John Wimber, I'm going to just read a few things for us, and then we'll wrap it up, all right, uh, who is the founder of the Vineyard and has a very, very snazzy cover to his book, right? You're never going to find this edition. Good luck. Um, called Power Evangelism, in which he really um, lays out a lot of the things that I've been saying. Let me just read you a little snippet. Many evangelicals sincerely think that their thinking on such issues as healing um, is formed by the Bible alone. Many evangelicals think that their thinking on things like healing and the Holy Spirit is formed by the Bible alone. They are unaware of how powerful the influences of a Western materialistic worldview are and, are, um, and how the, that worldview affects their interpretation of Scripture in general and especially their perception of the supernatural in Scripture. Most Western Christians must undergo a shift in perception, a shift towards a worldview that makes God, that makes room for God to intervene. It is not that we allow God's intervention. He does not need our permission. This shift is that we begin to see his miraculous works and allow them to affect our lives. Our ability to see and understand different phenomena is learned. And sometimes because we have a different view of something or because we have not learned what to look for. And he brings up this horrible picture of a hag and a young woman. You guys seen this one? All right, who sees a young woman? Who sees an old hag? You see an old hag? All right, none of you guys are Christians. Only the people who saw the woman. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> just kidding. Uh, just kidding. Have you seen the duck and the rabbit one? It's pretty good. Show us that one, JT. This is good. What is it? Is it a duck or a rabbit? What is it? It's both? Yeah. So, okay, take that away so we're not distracted, JT. All right. So, Wimber goes on to say, we have selective perception when it comes to reading the Bible and when it comes to seeing God work around us, in which we have been trained to see things a certain way by our culture and society, maybe that we want to see or maybe don't want to see. And he goes on to point out that Jesus knew about this, this dynamic of seeing things in plain sight, not seeing them, reading the book in plain sight. Here we read this thing, hiding in plain sight, the book of Acts, and yet not reading it. And this is the only conclusion I can come to when it comes to the way that many Christians think what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus talked about this. He says, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear nor understand. Indeed, uh, nor understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And I just can't help but wonder, are assumptions about the inactivity of God in our life is simply because we have been trained to not see it. You hear what I said? Our assumptions about the inactivity of God in our life is because we have been trained to not see it by a materialistic worldview, which does not believe the supernatural can break through into the physical, right? We don't, we don't see it. We don't see the way he's engaging. We don't see the way that he's supernaturally healing and acts and how the people after them are supernaturally healing, partly because of underlying assumptions that we have about the supernatural. Jesus seemed to think in John 5, 17, that my father is always working, and so am I. My question for you is, do you see it? Do you see him? Do you see the Father working? Do you see the Father working in Scripture? Do you see the Father working around you? Because apparently, according to Jesus, he is. And maybe you're staring at a rabbit saying, that's a duck. That's a duck. <laughs> and maybe, maybe God right now is trying to say, I am right next to you, brother. I am right next to you, sister. Just quit closing your eyes to my presence. Acknowledge my power and presence next to you. You've trained yourself to not see it. It's in the book. He's here. His arm is not too short to save. His supernatural power still working in the world, and yet we don't see it so often. For Jesus, y'all, this world is a God-saturated world where at any moment God can break through, he can bust through the veil and extend the liberating rule and reign of the kingdom in lives here and now. That's how Jesus saw the world. So much so that he would say, you can reach out and touch it. That's how Jesus talked about the kingdom. He said, it's at hand. It's here, next to you, right beside you. Do you have eyes to see it? In the mess, in the stress, right? The God's the experience of God's love for Jesus was at hand, and anyone could receive it. Anyone who knocked on the door, it would open. And brothers and sisters, can I just say this to you as we wrap it up? Beware of any theology that effectively cuts the arms off of God. I don't care how it dresses itself, right? Any theology that makes you believe that you are on your own, and it's up to you, 
and you're on your own steam and that God won't or can't engage with you here and now is not biblical. God is active. God is active in the world, brothers and sisters. He's active. Or as C.S. Lewis so poetically said, Aslan is on the move. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you have eyes to see it? Let me just end with this. I've said that probably five times. I promise this is the truth now. No one believes me now when I say that. Let me end with this. Um, this book is The Great Divorce. I'm reading it with some guys right now. Um, and, and Lewis talks about the insistent and ever-increasing goodness of God being poured out on all creation. Okay, and this is what he says. He says, Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat upon the ears of the deaf, but they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes fast shut. First, they will not. In the end, they cannot open their hands for gifts or their mouth for food or their eyes to see. He pictures the goodness of God beating against our souls, but without faith, his goodness meets us like sound waves meet the, the ears of the deaf. Is his goodness absent? No, it's there. You just can't hear it. And he says, if you live in that state long enough where you don't see the action of God, don't receive the goodness and the mercy of God, he says, see, Lewis's claim is that in the end, you will not be able to open your mouth and be fed by the Holy Spirit, to open your hands and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he calls this damned. That's why he uses that word. All right, that's, that's his picture of that, right? Dude could make a point. It's an unconscious captivity, is what he's pointing out, of not being able to see and receive the goodness of God here and now. So I just want to pray for us. And as we do, and as we are going to continue to do throughout this series, we are going to leave this room as a space for us to sit with after we're dismissed and come to the table. And maybe today, what you've realized about yourself is that um, maybe God's goodness is being poured out around you, but maybe you just don't have eyes to see it. Maybe today you've realized that there's a callous, a callousness to your heart, and that is stopping you from receiving the goodness of God. And we just want to give you an opportunity today to sit before the Lord and ask him, God, would you soften my heart again? God, would you give me eyes to see that you're working around me through other people, that your goodness has not been cut off, and that it's not like a slow drip in a desert. It's an overflowing, uh, I mean, Jesus taught living water. So let's just pray. Father, God, on all my brothers and sisters today who feel that they cannot receive your goodness, God, for all my brothers and sisters right now who just, they don't see you at work in the world, would you soften their heart right now, Holy Spirit? God, would you come, and would you, like we read about Paul, would you let scales fall from eyes? But some of us, we, we have just become so blind to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in the earth that even when it happens in front of our eyes, we dismiss it. God, give us eyes to see it. God, that you are in our midst working 
seeking and saving the lost. God, you are, you are calling us on mission with you to shoulder up next to you and push back the kingdom of darkness and invite the kingdom of your son in and amongst us. Kingdom of God. Jesus taught us to pray, y'all. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're just going to ask for that right now, Jesus. God, in the places of our hearts where we are fighting against the kingdom, God, where we're saying, no, Lord, where you're calling us into risk and obedience and we're afraid to take the step, would you call us out, Jesus? God, would you convince us right now of your goodness, that your goodness is strong enough to support us. We can rest our happiness on your goodness. God, we can rest our comfort on your goodness that's stronger than all the other gods. Thank you, God. So, man, every week we do this.